Welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. We're your hosts, Lauren and Adam. On this podcast, we help start or continue conversations about the beautiful and messy parts of life. Although we both had a conservative upbringing, we've since grown out of our traditional ways of thinking and have deconstructed the religious lenses we once saw the world through. From being in the CCM industry and purity culture to sex positivity and sacred sovereignty, it's been quite the ride. We bring on a wide variety of guests to hear their story and break down topics like religious trauma, racism, and the patriarchy, while demystifying things like spirituality, equality, and love. We'd love to hear your story. You can find us on Instagram at deconstruct.pod. Now, on to the episode. everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Alice Gretchen. She is an actress, author, and the founder of Dare to Doubt. She's Midwest raised and LA based. Alice's nomadic childhood moved her around the United States until her modeling career as a teenager led to an acting career in Hollywood. Alice is fascinated by the subjective experience of life, which she explores through acting and storytelling. Her own story includes a painful but rewarding transition from evangelical Christianity to atheism, a journey that has inspired her to found DareToDoubt.org, a resource site for people detaching from belief systems they come to find harmful. Encouraging people to trust themselves and live courageously in their own truth is what gives Alice a sense of purpose. She lives in Los Angeles and loves hiking, traveling, and the relentless pursuit of knowledge. Alice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We are appreciate so it. excited to have you on today because, well, so many reasons why I dare to doubt way where do you seem like an awesome, amazing human. I think we know a lot of the same people, but on top of all that, I've been told a couple, by several people now that we needed to talk to you because apparently, Alice, you and I have a lot in common. Um, Ooh, so, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but at least in just um, what I've been told in personality or in writing style and the way we communicate. Um, are you familiar with the Enneagram? Yes, I am. Okay. What is your Enneagram number? I'm a five. Okay. Five yeah. wing six. That's why. Because <laughs> we're both five wing sixes. Ah, okay. Hello. Oh, it's so fun to meet another five. I feel like I've only met two my entire life. Oh, really? I know. <laughs> that I, I know of. Yeah. You said me and my other personality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so. wow. That's so that's so flattering. First of all, um, <laughs> I was just listening to your guys's podcast on um, are we atheists or not? Uh, I, there, were, there were some minutes left to finish, but I, you were saying some things in a way the rabbit trails of your mind I, mm. I felt very familiar to me I was like oh yeah like that's how I that's how I think yeah so very flattering if, if it's not self-flattering to say so <laughs> <laughs> I know I feel the same way I'm like I love her writing style but also people told me it's similar to mine so I don't know what that's saying but yeah I love it I oh. think I think you speak really well and you communicate very well and your storytelling is um I don't know I feel like it really hits facts but it also hits emotions which I as a five wing six Really appreciate so. <laughs> oh, and Adam, for the record, what's your enneagram? You, if you, know. Feel like you, you know, I've always gone back and forth because I want to believe myself to be a four, so that I can be like creative and doing something in the world that's just extremely unhealthy most of the time, and so I just revert to a two. But, but I think, in fact, I just will always be a two. And oh. every once in a while, I'll be healthy and I'll be creative and in my living into my fourness. Every once mm -hmm. in a while, but I, uh, mm -hmm. I think you're a two. But we really have just gone back and forth on this. But I, I'm, I think I'm, I think I've settled on, on you being a two. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for the record, I think I'm, I think I'm a two wing one. I tend to be a bit of a perfectionist. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have to say, twos are some of my my favorite people. I'm so grateful the world has twos in it because Lord knows I don't have enough in me, and I'm so grateful <laughs> that there are people that have plenty of two. And and it's like I, and yet I always feel so deeply sympathetic to twos because so both of my parents are twos Aww. um and and like I just knowing them and other twos in my life very intimately it's like oh you guys deserve so much more appreciation and reminders to take the load off yourselves yeah. and accept help and and just and yeah just be be more supported and appreciated for that and not walked all over yeah. <laughs> right so 
Yeah, yeah. yeah think, oh, how beautiful that you guys both, uh, that that's such a fun combination, five and two. I yeah, know, it, it is. is. It is fun. We try to be very communicative of needs and desires. That's something we has come into play a lot more in the past year and a half to two years. Because yeah. we were both, mm. we were traveling musicians. That's like, he, we were in a band together. So a lot of things came really quite naturally for us. And so as we mm-hmm. transitioned into um, different careers and well, you know, they're not even that different careers, but they're just like a like a pathway off of the careers that we were in. It's been an interesting interesting transition, having to rediscover how to communicate and how to, um, yeah, I, I specifically Adam is learning to communicate his needs, and I'm yeah. learning to be looking out for those needs yeah, a right, lot more. Right, and how to work <laughs> together. You know, I think the primary thing is just figuring out how to work together when your life isn't work anymore. Yep, exactly. Because our life is life and work is work now rather than right. being on the road and everything mm-hmm. is work and life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it is Yes. Yes. Yeah, so so ap- apologies to your listeners who probably already know these about you, but as I'm getting to know you guys, so what I've gathered is um, you used to be part of a worship team. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, kind of. Yes, that is true. Okay. That is true. But yeah, um, my band was a Christian, contemporary Christian band um, called Love Collide. And it was with my sister. And we toured for years and years um, and uh, did music together for almost 10 years. And then Adam joined the band um, back in 2015. And so then we toured together for several years, three years mm-hmm. or so. Um we ended up winning a Juno Award for Best Christian Album of the Year. And since then, we have not been a band. Um, my sister mm. and I ended up doing our own stuff and just kind of um, taking different routes. And so, but I did end up marrying Ooh. the drummer. So, <laughs> <laughs> And that does lead to a very uh, public deconstruction it when does. you're uh, uh-huh. moving from a Christian platform into into something else. But I'm curious about your transition because you had talked about a little bit about how the subjectivity of life was a lot of what inspired your change and that being tied into um, your career in acting and I would assume in modeling as well. What, what did your childhood and your kind of coming into yourself look like? Oh, man, a very, a very slow internal and then on the out, it it felt very slow internally and outwardly. I've heard that it seemed very abrupt, (laughs) Um, probably because I process a lot internally and I'm not inclined (laughs) to usually share when I'm in the midst of a shift or a process because I haven't fully fleshed it out yet. It's difficult for me to um, articulate when I'm feeling or experiencing things in the moment. And sometimes that moment is like a five-year period. (laughs) So Mm -hmm, all of a sudden I'll come out of it and um, people like people might say things like usually usually playful and positive like whoa where did this side of you come from or like uh, like um, like whoa you seem like you've had like a like a personality shift and it's fine you're you know it's lovely but wh- wh- whoa this seems like it came out of nowhere and so um, which is understandable to me and I don't mean to be cryptic to anyone. And I, I don't mean to withhold, you know, a, a very, very typical Enneagram five <laughs> traits. It's like, I don't, I don't mean to be, um, what's, what's our, our, our avarice is our like fatal flaw or oh, something like that. Avarice is in greed. Like greed. Yeah. 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 And I remember when I saw that, I was like, greed, I'm not greedy. I'm such a minimalist. <laughs> and it was like, oh no, I'm greedy of my privacy. I'm greedy of my time. I'm greedy of my thoughts, of my emotions. Mm-hmm. I'm, I like, I hoard them to myself out of a need for survival, honestly, which as I'm sure a lot of us who grew up religiously can, can relate to a certain degree was because it wasn't safe to really be who we were in many ways. And we learn in different, you know, that's where we get all the different personality types. Uh, we, we learn how to adapt to be our non-true versions of ourselves in different yes. ways. And for me, that just meant bottling up a lot. And so it makes sense, even though I don't mean to be cryptic, it makes sense to me um, why people suddenly might be 
like, whoa, like, were you always like this? Like, I, I don't mm-hmm. like, what do you mean? Or like, and, and so, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's a, a long roundabout way of attempting to answer that question of what was it like to, to shift? Um, it, it felt very, like a very slow, agonizing, um, mental gymnastics of, of self doubt and paralysis. And uh, like, it, it just was miserable, mm-hmm. um, on the inside and on the outside, it, it, looked pretty compliant until suddenly it wasn't. <laughs> um, and vehemently it was not. <laughs> yeah. I, so, I'm very familiar yeah. with that transition because I mean, I, I say, and like you said before, jokingly, uh, I feel like the transition of deconstruction, Lauren kind of came to me and presented this thesis <laughs> after months of research <laughs> as to why she it. had deconstructed. And I'm like, okay, yeah, cool. That makes sense for you was was kind mm-hmm. of my response. I mean, clearly we had some hurdles to get through on vernacular and all of that and shifting over language so that it wasn't triggering of of uh, evangelical Christian past, but um but I I I've definitely seen that in Lauren as well that like it can it can be very internalized without the intention of that just because and I I suppose you can speak <laughs> for yourself here, but like you tend to not want to um as much as you want to try things on, as long as much mm-hmm. as you say try on everything, yeah. well, that's you why can I'm have so it and then you can get rid it. of it. Mm-hmm. But you also don't want to claim something that you feel passionately about until you believe yourself. Yeah, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. I want to. I want. Yeah. I want to research away. You know, I want to know. I I feel like I often go through transitions. By the time I'm posting about it, I'm on to the next transition. <laughs> By the time I'm talking about it, I'm like on to the next thing. I'm like researching and. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm sure that you can relate and, you know, you had mentioned your, your childhood and your parents being twos and also in, in your bio, it, it mentions that you had a, kind of like a nomadic childhood. What was, what was that like? What did your parents, what did your parents do growing up? So, uh, so my parents, like, I, by the time I was born, it was it was a very, I guess, I guess one might say, like, typical American. I was born in like a typical American family. Like my so my dad used to be a police officer. My mom uh, used to be a concert pianist, and she was teaching piano. They were they were Christians, both of them, by the time I was born, and uh, lived in the Bay Area of California, and uh, and then um, let's see, like when I was two. Uh, they felt called to be missionaries. So when I was a toddler, we, and with my, my little brother um, who came, I, I'm the oldest of five. So the little brother that came right after me, um, my parents left their, their careers and sold the house. And uh, we went to Nepal and Thailand um, to be missionaries with, at the time they, they were part of the four square denomination church, um, which is rooted in Pentecostalism for anyone who doesn't know. Um, and we were only overseas for about nine months in Asia. And then, um, you know, the doors, the doors closed, as we said back then. And mm-hmm. uh, meanwhile, God opened a door in Rockford, Illinois, for my dad to, to be a, a pastor of, of a small church there. And so that's how my family ended up in Illinois for a little bit. And during that time that they were in Illinois, that we were all in Illinois, which is where my memories um, really started kicking in. Like, I don't really remember a whole lot of my life before that. Um, but so I, I think of my, my youth, my, my childhood as having grown up in Illinois. Um, but in fact, we were only there until I was 11. Um, because, uh, when I was eight, my parents became, uh, very heavily involved in the spiritual renewal movement that is now commonly referred to as the Toronto Blessing. And it was a charismatic revival movement um, that spread across the globe, originated in, in Toronto, Canada, as I'm sure people can figure out. Um, <laughs> but it, uh, it it was also rooted in Pentecostalism and emphatically non-denominational. Um, it split off from the Vineyard Church, which arguably is non-denominational and denominational at the same time. I, I'm not sure Vineyard <laughs> still considers itself non-denominational, but, um, but yeah, like they, they, uh, what, what this revival did was it really just invigorated their faith in a way that made it very real, um, like very real to them and inspired them to live out their faith in a way that, uh, they just felt was, was what God, wanted them to do. Yeah. And, uh, them, you know, and they had five of us by, by that point. And so, 
uh, long story short, what God ended up wanting us to do, or or so they they sincerely believed, was to sell all of our possessions and trust in God to provide for us. So this meant my de- my parents giving up any sort of worldly employment. Wow. Um, and we it started off as we rented out our house for um, to some friends for a year, and we were just kind of vagabonding around California, staying with different people um, who were members of this home group that my my family joined. Um, and that was the year that I was 11 to 12. And then uh, when God, God said we could go back to Illinois, so we did, and we, we were only back in our home for like six or seven months or something like that before um, it appeared that God wanted us to move again and this time to sell our house completely. And uh, technically, uh, that's when we were, uh, homeless by choice or, or, um, yeah. just, yeah, uh, uh, traveling. Um, to me, it felt like homelessness, but I understand that, that the connotations that typically go with that word are, I don't feel are necessarily applicable to my family. Like we didn't sleep on the sidewalk or, or beg, uh, mm. or busk on street corners. Um, but we were, we didn't have a home, <laughs> um, in, in a structural sense. And, one of the things that was tricky for me was um, that my my family and especially my parents very much emphasized that our family was home. Home is, you know, it's a very like home is where the hardest mm-hmm. hardest sort of thing. And and um, by all accounts, you know, that that's more than enough for many people. Um, for me, my my own definition of home then and to a degree now is where I feel stable. Um, I don't need to have the people who love me with me to feel home, um, is just something I've learned about myself. I think it's a beautiful sentiment, but one that I, I have a difficult time relating to because I feel home when I'm in a routine, when I'm surrounded by things that make me feel safe, where there's regularity and order. And, um, that these are things that I know about myself now as a 35 year old woman, but as you know, a 13 year old, like eighth, between eighth to ninth grader, it was just like, Oh, what's wrong with me that my family isn't enough to be my home? You know, like, wh- like, why is this so? Like, I don't know. And I mean, it would be hard for anyone of any age, maybe, to like be, uh, to have a, a period of instability. But, um, you know, and it's not that it was necessarily easy for my my parents either. You know, like they they just really were walking their talk and just genuinely believed that this was um, what God wanted. There's And there's plenty of biblical verse to back up a lifestyle choice like that. Um, you look at Jesus's disciples and the words of Jesus and, you know, give up everything, come follow me. And, you know, who cares if your family hates you for it? You're, if you want to be a true disciple, this is what you do. And, um, and so it's, it's uh, maybe not everyone, certainly not all Christians feel called to walk that out in a, in a more literal way. And my parents were not always literal with the Bible. Um, and, and so I don't know, which to me, which I'm, I'm beginning to understand is like, um, maybe no one is, you know, even, Mm -hmm. even extreme fundamentalists don't actually chop off their hand if it causes them to sin. So who, who can really say like they're a hundred percent fundamentalist, literal interpreters of the Bible, but it's a, I I like to think of fundamentalism as a spectrum is what I'm learning now. Um, and because some people would have considered my family fundamentalists, but the way that I grew up, like me and my sisters were allowed to wear pants. So that made us not fundamentalists. (laughs) (laughs) That's the dividing line right there. Yeah, you know, and for me in my in my youthful mind, like that's what it was, and I'm learning to broaden my terms and 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 things like that. But yeah, for me it was it was a very difficult uh, difficult period, and um, we just traveled. We lived in campgrounds throughout mostly the continental U.S., but also a little parts of Canada. Um, we would meet people, just random strangers, who would sometimes invite us to come stay with them for a few days. We would meet up with extended family and stay with them for a few days or even a few weeks, and. Yeah. Um, it was like the period of us being like officially without, you know, a structural home was, was not that long. It was less than a year, but it, you know, on, on the heels of, of the California trip where we were again, like living in tents and trailers and just kind of bouncing around different places. Like for me, it it felt like a three-year period of, of just a lot of instability. And even when my family did settle down eventually in Kansas city, Missouri, when I was, uh, 14. Um, even then it was like, 
well, how, what it felt like to me was how long until God yanks the rug out from under me again. Yeah. Um, it's always easier in retrospect to be like, oh yeah, that's when my family quote unquote settled down. But it didn't feel like that at the time because God to me just seemed so arbitrary and so capricious with what he wanted us to do and where he led that, uh, it just was like what I learned, what, what, what was emphasized to me growing up was trust. Like God wants us to trust him, trust in him to provide trust this, trust that. And for me personally, I just never felt like my trust was ever rewarded in a way that felt like a reward. And so it was like, all you can trust is instability. I, I I reread journals when I was writing my, my memoir and that was such a recurring theme was, um, that stands out to me now is how, how, uh, the only thing trustworthy was just that I would never be able to trust God because he was so unaccountable, unpredictable. And, um, you know, like he's, he like supposedly knew everything, but, and supposedly gave us free will and we're using our free will to obey the thing that he already knows we're going to do. But if we disobey him, he already knew that too. I I was just so confused as a, as a Christian. Um, my, my entire Christian existence was just, um, the most painful part to me, I've said before, it was the confusion more than purity culture, more than anything else, more than hell, fear of hell. It was the confusion. Um, and that it just still splits my mind to this day. Um, and, uh, but I just feel so happy now that I don't need to be confused. Um, where the stakes are no longer so high because I don't believe in hell. So if I do feel like getting into a theoretical (laughs) conundrum of like, what does this mean? And how can this part be true if this one's also not, if this one's also true, like now, if I do find myself entertaining remotely or kind of like, if I'm, if I find myself on a podcast per se, where it's like (laughs) kind of, it's being asked, it's like, um, it's, I can, I can engage in it now from a more, um, curious place that's a lot less threatened, but there's still much that confuses me. And I don't like the feeling of confusion at all. That feeling, which is common, but that feeling alone can still feel very triggering to me. It's, it's interesting to me because I think a lot of people would consider deconstructing your faith, something that is more volatile, is something that shakes a foundation that, that stability that you, that you said you were seeking Mm -hmm. through that whole that whole mm-hmm. journey of your parents following what some may consider the intuition of the Holy Spirit or following what, whatever flighty um, mm-hmm. spirit that that is. But from the sounds of it, it was a choice. It was a more stable choice. It was seeking stability for you to deconstruct an unstable God. And that Ooh. is something that I have not really heard much because I... Because there's so many people that say that that their faith in God is is the foundational stability that they have, and when that's when that's broken, that that shakes everything in their life. But do oh, you, do you feel like you chose? Did you do you feel like you chose that deconstruction, or do you feel like you were leaning into trying to find stability, or or what did that feel like for you at the at the impetus of you moving away from that faith that your parents devoted? I mean, mm-hmm. everything to. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Well, for, first, firstly, I, I'm going to be chewing on that nugget for a little bit. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way before, um, even though I very much can relate to what you're saying about, um, for me, God was so unstable that it was almost finding, it was almost like finding stability to lose my faith. Um, it, it was, even though it was also incredibly destabilizing at the same time, because it was, um, it's, it's, uh, let me let me see if I can let me take a stab at trying to articulate this because I would like to get better at it. So bear with me. Um, yeah, I think that for 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 me, God as a concept uh, was extremely real because it was all that I knew. Um, like many many people, like I grew up like not only very uh, very very Christian in our non denominational read evangelical sort of way. Um, but I was also homeschooled my entire childhood until I went to community college. And so there was that extra layer of insulation. And because I grew up moving around a lot, like it was just, God was all I knew. And I understand why people, especially present Christians might doubt the veracity of my faith. Like, oh, maybe I was never a true Christian. I'm sure you guys have heard things like this yourselves. Like, oh, you must not have been a true believer. Um, and I can understand and be sympathetic to why they'd think that, but let me just say at the start, God was very real to me as, 
as a belief, as a, as a concept, as a lifestyle, uh, everything in my life revolved around this being and all of the people virtually like 99% of the people that I interacted with until I was 17 years old were also God believing and, and Christian. And so it was, it, but yet God was never real to me experientially. Mm. God was always this abstract, hypothetical, belief-based, faith-based um, idea that I accepted as reality the way like, I can't see the wind, but I know it's there, mm. <laughs> except wind I actually can feel. God, I never <laughs> felt. <laughs> so I, you know, that, and that was my experience. And I know a lot of people, including people who are now atheists, like did have genuine experiences that at the time they called God, but I never even had those those sorts of mystical experiences or connections to anything that I would have even now described as like spiritual or divine. Like I just never felt whatever that energy is that people talk about, even in the non-religious world, that collective consciousness, that universal spiritual spirit, you know, whatever that is. Like I just, I've just never connected with it or felt it. The closest I've come is on psychedelics and I can very, I feel like I can pretty confidently be convinced that, um, that, that otherness, uh, that, that connectivity is like very easily to me explained by, by science. And so it doesn't make it supernatural or spiritual to my own definitions. Um, it's amazing. It's mm. awe inspiring. It's, it's magnificent. And we, there's so much yet to learn, but, um, nothing that in my, to my defi definition would be supernatural. So I, in never experiencing God, it was, he was both very real to me and yet not real to me, which makes it difficult to articulate, um, in certain ways, what it was like to deconstruct from that idea. Um, it does, it, 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 because even though, God was an unstable figure to me. Um, and I did find ultimately far more stability deconstructing. There was still a lot of instability in the midst of the deconstruction because I felt like my whole, my whole worldview was just completely shattered. Um, and for me, the, the biggest shard in that broken shatteredment was uh, what is the point of life? anymore because I grew up believing and always being reminded that the point of life, the point of my existence is to glorify God. Um, and God made us because he was lonely for company. That's why he made Adam in the garden and saw Adam, God wasn't enough for Adam. So he made Eve because Adam was lonely. And, and so it's like God made us to have companionship and to bring glory to his name. And I remember at my youth group in Kansas city, when my family and I were there, I was about 14, 13, 14. I remember hearing one of the sermons and it was the, it was called like, what is the meaning of life? And the meaning of life is to give glory to God. And that was just so emphasized. Mm. Um, we're supposed to glorify God in every aspect of our life and how we dress, what we listen to and who we date, who we don't date, you know, and our thoughts. Like we, we become our own thought police in a Christian paradigm and, uh, or at least in, in my experience within Christianity. And so losing that lens of Christianity, of faith in anything really, because I, it was instant for me. If God, if the Christian God wasn't real, no God was real. It was, I was instantly an atheist. Um, I explored other spiritualities and, and religions and things for both as a Christian and as a non-Christian, but in my gut, I just knew, like, I, I applied the same logic that I, that I applied to the existence of the Christian God and nothing else, um, <laughs> could, could all could either be sustained by, by that logic. Um, and I know that's, you know, these could be loaded terms and possibly, um, be offensive to some. And I apologize if, if that's so, but, uh, this is just what it, what it was to me and what these words were to me. So, um, so yeah, it, it was, it was, um, losing my, my purpose to live was devastating and I didn't want to live because if life was confusing before, it was even more confusing now. Um, like I said, ultimately I did find stability, far more stability than I ever found in, in faith. God was never my rock. God was sand that was a dust storm constantly. Um, and I think that uh, I would never trade the cost of that deconstruction for where I've gotten to, but it really was devastating. And I've, I've, I wrote in my book about uh, religious trauma syndrome and um, how kind of 
after I lost my faith, I, I really went through a ringer with, with that as so many of us have. And some people don't, you know, there's plenty of people. I know plenty of people who left the faith that they grew up in and who, who don't seem to suffer or relate to the concept of religious trauma. You know, they're, they're, for them, it's like, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's like, I disagree with my family now. Holidays are weirder. And like, I don't know, there's a lot that doesn't make sense, but I don't feel traumatized. I felt traumatized. <laughs> so, and I exhibited a lot of symptoms of like complex PTSD style trauma. And I was in therapy for a long time afterward um, to just try to make sense of life. Because again, confusion is just my, my worstest enemy. <laughs> and um, I've, learned, I've learned to live with it. I, I've learned to accept that I'll never know um, the answers to the bigger questions. And even more, I've learned to accept that even if I ever did find them, I would never trust them. I would never mm-hmm. trust it because yeah. how would I know for sure? <laughs> right. Um, and just learning to laugh at the absurdness. And, and that t- definitely took me into a place of nihilism that that felt again the it, I understand why it feels destabilizing to some people the idea that life is meaningless but for me I did find stability and it. it's like oh yeah life is meaningless and that's why bad shit happens because nothing has a reason nothing makes sense it's we're all just go you know like it just shit happens and that's it um <laughs> tough luck or good luck you know that's that's it I just can't I I would never I, I it's hard for me at this point to imagine ever being convinced of any sort of reason for anything in existence ever again. And and it was difficult to get here, but I I am very grateful that I did manage to get to a place where that's a a beautiful, calming uh, idea and no longer a um, not wanting to live anymore idea. Mm. Um, cause it's the only one that's stuck to me as, as true in terms of like a philosophical worldview. It feels true to me. And so that makes me feel, uh, I've learned, I've learned to find the safety in that, um, because I can't find any holes to poke through it, honestly, in right. my own thing, the way I can find holes to poke through so many other philosophical worldviews, but yeah. Yeah. Does that, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. I love following your trails. Cause this is, this is truly so fun for me because you're just reverberating and saying in different ways, so many things that I think, and I've gone through. So this has been, this is honestly, I've, I just like put down the mic and was like, I just want to hear her just like keep rolling Aww. because because <laughs> it's fun for me. Cause I, like you said in the beginning, you were kind of following the little trails that I was going down and, and, you know, in the car in our <laughs> episode. Um, and I definitely really, I'm like, yep, it's going here. Oh, yep. It's going there. I'm like, yeah, I was definitely following. So <laughs> I love, I love hearing you speak, but, um, on terms of like spirituality and atheism and all that, I think, I think that's really interesting. It's something I like to play with a lot, um, within my own, uh, experiences and own uh, my own practice. I don't really like the word practice because I do consider myself more of an atheist than I am like a practicing spiritual person. However, mm-hmm. I do, there are parts of me that feel spiritual and I don't, I don't remember if I talked about it in that episode that you were listening to. And I think it was, but, um, to me, science and the unknown is the, is what is spiritual. Um, what we don't understand is like that spiritual feeling for me. So like mm-hmm. whenever I'm discovering something or whenever somebody asks me, not even, not even asks me a question, but something kind of comes up in life or a conversation leads to this um, new knowledge or makes me think harder about something or makes me question something I've already known or thought I knew that to me is like a spiritual feeling. That's like a, Oh my gosh, like what's next or like what's new or what could be found. Mm. And like, I don't know if that's something you relate to again, like as a five wing six and we're going to keep bringing that up because it is so like rare to find another female five wing six who has similar stories. Um, (laughs) so I think it's like, I think it's very fun, but do you, do you find that spirituality is something that you can connect with as a self-identifying atheist, or do you just completely like, is that not, you talked about energy, but, or is that not something you, you try to relate to or incorporate in your life? You know, I feel like I've gone through different phases of my relationship to the word spirituality. I think where I'm at right now is um, where, where I, what I find my, what, what feels accurate to say now is I find myself still 
um, extremely curious about and intrigued by things that fall under what most people would call a spiritual umbrella. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I'm very intrigued by near-death experiences and Mm -hmm. most people would consider that to be um, in a spiritual category. I I think books on near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences would probably be found in the spirituality religion section of a bookstore. Um, Maybe overlap with psychology, depending on who's in charge of putting books where (laughs) um, or how the publishers decide to categorize the genre. But um, but yeah, I, I look at these things, though, not from a uh, supernatural or soul believing sense. I don't personally believe in souls. And I, I, I think that when we talk about out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences, there's often the word soul found in the language surrounding those topics. And because mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, to me, souls aren't real. It's, I understand that they fall under a spiritual category, but I'm obsessed with these things from a more neuroscientific standpoint where consciousness to me is my synonym for what other people call soul. And to other people, it's different. They believe you can have soul and consciousness and that they're distinct. Your soul is like an eternal being and your consciousness is just the human product of your, your brain that tells you, you are you, and you can respond or not respond, you know, like it's the ultimate question, right? Like what is consciousness and (laughs) what is existence? And I, I'm inclined to think that if I have consciousness, then everything in the universe must, because we all have the same grandparents of hydrogen and helium. And so if we're, we're, if we're all just, you know, atoms vibrating at different frequencies and whatnot, (laughs) it's like, if my atoms make me conscious and I think everything in existence uh, probably has consciousness to some degree or another. I'm not saying it's identical to human consciousness. I'm not saying that a plant or a cat or, you know, my leather sofa has, is conscious the way you and I are conscious, but how, how do we know if everything, if everything is, you know, energy, which I'm inclined to, until we have evidence, evidence that's stronger to suggest that it's not, if we accept that everything is energy, then to me, everything is consciousness or consciousness doesn't exist. Right. Um, is kind of how I, I reason that. And I think, so with regard, in regards to spirituality, I do greatly enjoy exploring topics that fall under that category, but I do not self-describe as a spiritual person. And, uh, I, I, I find that, um, I find I'm always internally walking a fine line with language, wanting to knowing, feeling torn because I I very, I very much like accuracy and definition to words. And I love the dictionary and thesaurus. They're like my favorite books. Um, But I, so I'm torn between wanting to use words properly and, and encourage others to use words by a dictionary definition and also just accepting and participating in that we actually don't use words the way they're supposed to to be used. We use them, they they come to have different connotations and colloquialisms depending on what culture we're in or subculture or, you know, like in Christianity, we can speak Christianese fluently, I'm sure all of (laughs) us. So it's like there's different, you know, spirit in the Christian sense means something totally different than it does to people who go to, you know, ayahuasca ceremonies with shamans. Spirit means something different to them and spirit means something different when we talk about like a free spirited horse. So it's, uh, I understand that words can have multiple meanings and stuff, but, um, so for me, I think the the way that I know the word spiritual to mean in my culture, in my social setting, in my social circles, I don't relate to that word. Um, when I think of someone who is spiritual, I think of someone who believes that we have a spirit, aka soul. And that would disclude myself from uh, that descriptor, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So uh, you have the website daretodoubt.org and seeing as a lot of the spirituality and all of that that you've that you're divorced from in in so many ways i i feel like being involved in so many people's path or 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 entanglement or or unraveling or whatever whatever you want to call it i feel like it keeps you in close proximity to a lot of people's spiritual and religious experiences does that mm-hmm. does that is that a is that taxing on you? Because between writing and recollecting your own experiences frequently and being surrounded by other people's experiences and, and bearing the burden or, or the gift of other people's stories, does that, does that become taxing for you? Did you, do do you still choose that daily or is that, 
or was writing an entirely different thing for you that that just kind of evolved into what it is now? Um, I do still choose that daily. Um, I've I've always been a writer. Like I've kept a journal since I was a very little kid. I have a whole trunk full of hard copy physical journals and then countless digital files of journals um, once I started using a laptop. Uh, but so I, writing's always been, um, I guess one might call it my spiritual practice. Uh, uh, it's, it's how I connect with my my motives, my feelings, my uh, ideas uh, are always best hashed out uh, through writing. That's my medium. For some people, it's like photography or paint or cooking or just talking out loud with like a friend or something. And sure. for me, writing writing's just um, how I learn myself best usually. Although I have to say, and I'm really excited that this is happening for me, I am learning to do that more in real life with other people. Yeah. As I've moved into a safer place of Enneagram language might use integration. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think fives at our best integrate toward eights, which yeah. is like the challenger and 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 um and I've I when I read that I was like oh yes like a healthy a healthy me does does come off as like like the what I like to think are the best parts of the eight and being able to consolidate ideas and present them to the world in a way that is what I hope um uh intended to 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 provoke and stimulate um, self-examination and self-truth and and uh, freedom ultimately. Uh, so and that freedom is going to look different for all of us. So with 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 dare to doubt, um, I do still quite. It, it it does not ever feel taxing to me. I have not, or I should say, I have not reached that place yet. I, I could imagine there might be one day when. Um, working in this space, talking with people like how you guys yourselves do with your, as, as podcast hosts who have deconstructed or who are fleeing really horrible, abusive situations. Um, you know, like I, I can't imagine a day where that might get to be a bit much and I might need to take a step back. Like I've experienced compassion fatigue before. I feel like as a society, we're probably due for collective compassion fatigue um, <laughs> or outrage fatigue, whatever we want to call it. Yeah. But, and that's going to be an interesting period to be alive in. But, um, uh, I think that for myself, maybe that could happen, but I'm also, I've also gotten a lot better at maintaining boundaries and including boundaries for my own self of like, okay, I need to step away from social media now, or, oh, I need to like put down this book. It's got my mind in hyperdrive and it, it's resulting in me not taking care of my body or, or whatever, or neglecting my, my real life relationships or, or, or what have you. So I think, um, it's not taxing to me right now. I feel so honored. It feels far more like um like a gift than a burden. Uh, and uh, I you know I I hope that it that I can continue to find ways to to keep that. And if it ever does get to a point where it's like oh I just can't right now, you know maybe there's going to be uh, we all go through periods of personal shit. You know like I'm sure there's going to be something in my life that I'm going to be like I need to step away from this because I just need to deal with my own life for yeah. a little bit. You know I, I'm sure that will happen. Um, but it feels like more than anything, it feels like such an honor to be able to hear other people's stories and have people. DM me or email me through the website and just share, share their story. And it's like, it's such a, such a treasure. And I, everyone's story is so unique and so different. And yet what I always love are seeking for the common themes and finding the pattern of, um, of uh, the, the similar arcs that we go through and, and emotions that we feel. And um, that, that is incredibly rewarding to me on a purely selfish level. Uh, and I say selfish in like a, a loving way. I love the word selfish. I love me to too. be selfish. Me too. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Maybe, maybe it's more that five greedy average. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it's just Either way. back what has like been said as a really negative thing and that we keep telling ourselves, don't be selfish, don't be selfish, don't be selfish. I think. Yeah. And we are like, no, I'm reclaiming that word being like, no, I'm fine. Like, I always say my phrase is, and I've said several times on this, on the podcast, I say, I, I just, or maybe not, maybe I haven't said it this that much, but I say it in real life where I, I feel like the world would really benefit if we would all just be a little bit more selfish. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, anyway, I, I go ahead. I, I continue. I just want to be like, yes, I, I also yeah, like yeah. that word. <laughs> um, no, I just, just on a selfish level, it, it like, 
it, it helps me. Like I'm still healing. I still heal a little bit with every person's story. I learn a new way to think about something. I learn a new way to make peace with something. I learn how someone else found a solution to the question that's plagued them since leaving their faith. And it's like, oh, that makes sense. You know, like it's, it's so rewarding on, on a, such a deeply personal level that, um, that's not to say that it might not like, again, it might, it might get a, get to a point one day where I'm just not in a space where I can, uh, hear anything else or take on, feel any, I, where I, I'm at an emotional capacity and I can't afford to feel one thing more. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, that might happen, but, uh, but until then, like I, I deeply enjoy the gift and, and a lot of people who leave religion are still very spiritual. So I'm still interacting with many deeply spiritual people, like the closest, many of the closest people in my life, my and friends and family members, like are, are deeply and would self-describe as, as spiritual people. And, um, I attract them. They, for some reason, put up with me <laughs> and it's like, it's great, you know, cause I'm so intrigued by their ideas and the, and their questions. And I feel like I ask the same questions, but I ask them through, um, a different lens and they appreciate that. I feel so loved and so seen and so supported by them. I'm so grateful for the spiritual people in my life who, who do take the time to be, um, uh, sensitive with their words and check in to make sure that, you know, I'm not feeling like excluded from the conversation or triggered or, or what, you know, it's like, I have such wonderful, wonderful people in my life and I'm so deeply loved and it gives me such an abundance of love to give back and patience to give back. And sometimes I run short of it. We all do, you know, and yeah. sometimes people are rude and sometimes I'm rude and I'm just combative for no reason. And I just feel like being an asshole today and raining on your parade <laughs> because I'm feeling angry about whatever, you know, like we all have our moments, but I think, um, you know, it's like that classic adage of like, you know, was, I forget what the classic adage is, but I'm sure everyone can relate to the theme of it's how you respond yeah. when those conflicts come that I think uh, matters more than the conflicts themselves, right. well, I would and, say generally. And the fact that you feel safe in your community right now. I mean, like you said, you integrate into an eight. If you are feeling combative and you have the energy to to contribute to conversations in that capacity, like you are surrounded by by people who do make you feel like you are in control of your own energy and your own space. And, yeah. and this isn't a question, but it's just really cool to me that you you bear so many stories between acting and and sharing all of these deconstruction stories. Being in an intimate relationship with a five, it's just I know that that is that's something that you hold as sacred that space to 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 hold your own consciousness and to hold your own story mm. and to hold your own, your own space to be with yourself and, and to retell your own stories to yourself and do your own research and discovery. And, mm. and for you to, to be going outside of yourself to, to be bearing other people's stories, but also in another way, acting and bearing the stories of the characters that you portray is just a mm -hmm. whole nother level of like moving <laughs> beyond just just having to conserve energy for yourself. So I just think that's really cool that that you operate in all those different spaces. Oh. Hey everyone, want to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode and rate and review the podcast as it helps others find this online community. Thanks so much. Now back to the episode. Thanks. I, I have a question for you as, as two, who my understanding of twos, like gets, um, if fives get a sense of self-worth and survival by seeking knowledge, you know, and, and offering, offering knowledge, like if twos, if the equivalent for twos is getting a sense of self-worth and survival strategy by being helpful and seeking ways to help, like, how does it feel for you or what's your take or what goes through your mind when you hear, uh, Lauren and I say like, uh, that we love the word selfish. Um, like what, what, uh, I'm curious to hear your perspective as I think of twos as very, um, selfless forward, you know, but yeah. I, I'm curious what your relationship to the word selfless and selfish is if okay. you don't mind so, yeah of course the word selfish to me is such a positive word because it mm -hmm. means boundaries for me selflessness mm. comes natural to me but it isn't always healthy for me it generally mm -hmm. isn't healthy for me and so which is why we've struggled as here for has the negative traits right the two or... right so she's naturally as you said more selfish she she has those boundaries innately mm -hmm. to be able to retract back into self and and take space to just exist and to examine. And for me, it, that is a very 
hard fought battle to to be selfish but it's something that i do aspire to because because in those moments that i can draw back and i can have time for myself those are the mm-hmm. times where i find myself integrating into my creativity into mm-hmm. my four into my ability to produce yeah. for myself something that i feel mm-hmm. is worthwhile otherwise it comes out sideways and you go to eight and you're unhealthy right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and so and so for me i also i think and I think this is something that's been made so clear in the past year and a half of of the pandemic, but also just like for us being in um, in a more public space with this deconstruction um, is I have had the need to create boundaries um, within conversations um, with family, with mm. friends and all of those kind of spaces that like I always I always want to be. I always want to be serving. So whether whether that's in conversation with my family and I want to um, betray myself in small ways so that I can serve them better in the conversation and make them feel more comfortable or whether mm-hmm. that is in um, taking on too many conversations with too many people and, and generally with people that aren't actually seeking an answer of de- through this deconstruction conversation, they're generally just seeking combat they're seeking um self-validation mm. of their own their own ideas and they just want to have a gotcha moment or they just want to have a whatever it is in a conversation and i have had to create boundaries and and not Oof. and not serve <laughs> so much in those <laughs> conversations where i'm investing time and energy into into trying to be genuine and heartfelt and and putting myself out there into these conversations that i I want them to feel I want them to feel the heartfelt truth of of what I my experiences are mm-hmm. and my interpretations of verse A, B, and and C. But you know, um, but now to to be able to put boundaries in place there and say, hey, look, I can tell by the way that you're approaching this conversation that you aren't seeking answers. So I can I can invest so much time into being mm. able to hold space for you because I want to do yeah. that. I feel like in a lot of places it's my responsibility to hold space and especially in allyship and in all of that, it's it's my yeah. responsibility to bear a lot of the triggers and problematic language that can be geared and aimed toward um, yeah. those that are those that are being oppressed. And, and so in in so many ways I still want to bear that. But but also finding the the avenues that I can put up boundaries so that I can maintain my energy for healthy conversations and things that will also uh, fill fill me up if if we want to use <laughs> some evangelical <laughs> Christian uh, vernacular. Sure, here. sure. <laughs> yeah, so yes, I love it. I love selfishness. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, it must feel so so liberating as as to to like lean into it more and like fully embrace it and be like, what? You mean my self growth is learning how to be selfish? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because like my self growth is like, oh, I need to learn to share more. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I feel like that's that's the fun of being in a two five relationship. Here is that yeah. The, we constantly exhibit the growth that each other needs to to present to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah, he's he's, he's my little sweetie <laughs> over here. He's so sentimental. <laughs> um, but um, for I, as you guys were just talking, I just had so many things just like go through my mind and like want to say and want to talk about. And I know we could talk all day and just keep going round and round. Um, but I did want to read an excerpt from your book, um, if that was okay with you. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, it's actually, it's, I think it's the, it's this, what you posted even on your, um, your story highlight, um, mm, for mm-hmm. it. but I just, I, I really resonated with it and I'm sure there's a reason why you chose this passage as your highlight. Um, because it, it's very, um, descriptive to anyone who's, anyone who's deconstructed, which is very, um, a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. so I just want to read it out loud and then, um, we'll talk about where people can find your book and find you and all that, but I'm just going to go ahead and read this. Um, and for those listening, this is an excerpt from Wayward and it's by Alice Gretchen. Today, the fastest growing religious group in the United States is the religiously unaffiliated. 78% of those who identify as none were raised in a religion, and 6 in 10 millennials leave the faith of their childhoods. I was merely one of them. 
This scattered demographic is scarred and estranged. They flood online message boards with stories of abuse, betrayal, and shame. They connect on Twitter with sweeping hashtags like ex-Muslim, hashtag ex-Muslim because, and hashtag ex-Vangelical. They bond in anonymous Facebook groups, wondering how to come out as non-believers to their families. Yet this demographic is also resilient. We are as brave as the martyrs we were raised to be. We are battling in the spiritual war we were trained to fight. We're just not on the side of religion. And believe us, no one is more surprised by this than ourselves. We are condemned, prayed for, and loathed as much as we are feared. But persecution was once our fuel. Our skin is thick with the courage to fight for truth as we see it. And where we once saw through dogma-colored glasses, we now see through the lenses of relativity, reason, and the validity of our own experiences. It's easy to dismiss us as bitter. It is understandable to write off our deconversions as desperate attempts at individuation and rebellion. It is compassionate to ask us why we left instead of praying for us to rejoin. Again, that's an excerpt from Wayward by Alice Gretchen. And I love that. I love that you talked about the tools basically we were given. Um, A lot of us were given in in our religious upbringing, Um, whether it's Christianity Mm -hmm. or not. I feel like many religions teach on martyrdom and teach on fighting the good fight. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, it's helpful to read and hear and see the terms and the tools that we once worked and are working and still are working so hard to have and be good at and be useful. And, you know, whether you're one through nine on the Enneagram or whatever you want to go with, with personality, we all want to be good. We all want to do the right thing. We all want to fight the good fight, you know, (laughs) stand for what's, what's, um, what's important. And, um, whenever you mentioned that we're just not on the side of religion and, you know what? That surprises me more than it surprises you um, because of all the time and energy I spent on, you know, making myself mm-hmm. be this person and, and, and learn these tools. And um, and I think that's just such an, an important read. Um, and I think it's so important to hear and mm-hmm. remind ourselves of that we are we are good. We are safe. We are whole. And we have it wasn't it wasn't time wasted whenever we were learning all of our things and training in the ways that we were um, because it one made us who we are, but also we're still using those tools. We're still fighting the good fight. Um, and if you, mm-hmm. and if you are, if you're hearing this and you want to read more about um, this sort of topic or hear more about Alice and her, um, her story, her journey, and just be reminded that, <laughs> that you are safe and good Um Check out her book, Wayward. Uh, Alice, where can people find your book? So people can find it at alicegretchen.com slash book. Um, and from there, or you can just go straight to the sources, but there this, the there's um, you can find it online basically as a short answer. It is not mm. sold in stores. I went with a, a hybrid publishing model, which is a whole separate conversation. And um, I'm really, I, I did it by choice deliberately. And I'm really glad that I did. But the hybrid publishing model that I went with was a print on demand model. Mm-hmm. So you can order online through either Barnes & Noble com or Amazon or other places that books are sold online. Um, maybe one day down the road there, you might be able to walk into a bookstore and buy a physical copy like right there in the store. But, uh, but for now that's, that's where you can find my book. And I, I, my audio book is going to be releasing. Um, it was supposed to be out by now. And honestly, it's on me that it's not because I've been, um, agonizing over different distributions. I can never have enough research. <laughs> so it's taken me so long to determine what to distribution routes I want to do for the audiobook, but I think I've narrowed it down. And so shortly within the next month or two, that should be available to people as well. Because um, 
one of the most common things that I've heard from people who uh, either hear me on a podcast or see something that I that I tweet or share on Instagram is like, oh, you know, like I, I, I would love to read your book. I don't have time. You know, I have three kids, but I drive them all the time and I love audiobooks or whatever it is. Um, the audiobook is coming. So thank you all for wanting to listen to it. Um, and yeah, that, that should be coming. And if you if you want to look for the announcements, like if you just follow me, at Alice Gretchen on Instagram um, or uh, Alice Food on Twitter, but I'm less and less on Twitter these days. So Instagram really is the best way to reach me or through um, my, contacting me through my website, which is just, again, alicegretchen.com. Um, I'll be announcing and sharing when when the audiobook is ready. And in the meantime, you can just buy the ebook or uh, paperback through uh, through commonly Amazon, although increasingly I find I encounter people who are like, oh, I really don't want to support Amazon, which I totally have respect. Uh, I get that. Um, and uh, I've talked with authors who are in the middle of leaving Amazon, which I think they're just like like next level walking their talk. I admire it. Um, so because to, to, for an author to leave Amazon, especially one that does, is not well established with a huge yeah. following, like we're no Stephen Kings. Um, <laughs> that, that's pretty... That that's that's bold. wow. I'm so I'm so yeah. impressed, you know, like yeah. it is bold. It's very bold and and I'm impressed. I support it. Um I'm still gonna be selling my book on Amazon and I still buy from <laughs> Amazon all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, that's that's where people can find me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, good. I'll make sure I put it all in the bio or the about section of this episode so people can find everything. Um, and I'll also include uh, daretodoubt.org as well. So everyone, just make sure you go check out the links. Alice, thank you so much for being on today and um, having this conversation with us. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. And everyone who's listening, thank you so much. We love you. Until next time. Bye. Bye.